hold it in. I'm, you hold it. I'm, I'm good at that. For a whole... I did that from like 7th to 9th grade, I held it in. My mother tells us, I was so nervous to go to the bathroom, I don't know what I thought I would like be beat up in there or something. So my mother would literally hold the front door open when she saw the school bus arrive, and I would just like, run! Like, I would hold it in like the entire day, yeah. That's true. <laughs> so you know my bladder's gonna be the first thing that goes. So I'm just warning you. Oh. Yeah, yeah nice. Pretty, right? Yeah. Okay. That's a great way to start. Isn't it? I've enjoy, been enjoy recording. Meal. You okay. know I'm recording, right? Yeah, put that at the end. You have to work up to this, that story. <laughs> that's that's the big but payoff. I think a lot of kids will be, us. yeah, will we'll, uh, we'll appreciate and relate to um, being nervous at school. Very much so. Yes. And being bullied. Yeah, I was bullied before I was hip to be bullied. So there. Oh my god! Oh my god! It's gonna go like this, is it? You think that a what? What is it you mean with the eye rolling? The Uh, eye rolling, (laughs) the the dark, deep sarcasm in my voice. (laughs) Um, No, I I mean I I was spit on in school. Jeez. Yeah, Jesus. Why are we? Why are we going there? We're going there right away. Right, I get right into it. I mean, I do like to talk about. We can start from the beginning. Okay. (laughs) Well, I do like to talk about high school in particular, not necessarily elementary school, which okay. did this bullying continue into high school? Uh, no, it was um, 7th, 8th, and ninth grade. Okay. We can start at the beginning if you want. Uh, How do you normally start your shows? Well, so I normally start by saying hello. Okay, let's start, with, <laughs> let's start now. Okay. So hello, everybody. <laughs> uh, I'm sitting here with Stan Zimmerman. Stan, you you can say hello too. I do have to now. Yes. You don't have uh, to, okay. but it would be nice. Hello, people. I don't know. That's usually okay. a nice way a good to time to yeah, say okay. hi. How do you like to be known as? I mean, because you've written, you've produced, um, you were an actor, as you said. Yeah. But you don't uh, have to whisper it. Maybe someone will hire me listening as an actor. As an actor, yeah. would you like that? Yes. Or do a commercial, or <laughs> yeah, why not? My dream is still Woody Allen would call. I've got a part for you. Yeah. Only you can play. What do you mean? Of course I could do it. Yeah. Maybe the Woody Allen biopic. There you go. Yeah. Um, but so you're a writer, uh, producer. Director. And I mean, like, director. so many... Director. Sorry. Jeez. <laughs> you're a writer, producer, director. Dancer, DJ. Dancer, DJ. Yeah. Uh, teacher. Teacher. F- fellow Jew. There you go. <laughs> uh... You've written, I mean, for so many things. Golden Girls, Gilmore Girls, a lot of girls. A lot of girls. That's the um, name of my book. The Girls from Golden to Gilmore. And it's going to be about all the wonderful, crazy women that I've worked with. Oh, what? Yeah. Yeah. Yes. Um, I mean, a very Brady sequel was a feature film that you wrote. And the first Brady Bunch movie. And the first Brady Bunch movie. Uh, Roseanne, you've worked yeah. on, I mean, so many things. The Rocks, the Annie movie with Kathy Bates, Alan Cumming, Kristen Chenoweth. Wow, I mean, yeah. A few do you want to just list off your IMDb? No, I, they can I, go, I hit the they big ones, right? There. Yes, you did. <laughs> Great. Why are you so? Why are you so trepid? Trepiditious? Uh, is that is really a word? word? Is that even a word? <laughs> why are you being? Why you have so much trepidation? There you go. <laughs> I have no trepidation. I'm very excited to do this. <laughs> We've been talking about doing this since you mentioned it in. Um, our acting class. That's right. Yeah, and we'll be talking about the acting class probably a little later. Okay. I mean, so the way that this usually goes is I usually well, like... Well, it won't go like it usually goes. I'll warn everybody right now. Why is that? You have plans to hijack my, my format? Probably, knowing me, but go ahead. <laughs> no, I mean, it's just, a, it's just a basic conversation and like, uh, 
I do like to start at the beginning because that's the logical place to begin. Okay. Um, Detroit, Michigan. There, there so we go. You picked up on it. You're from Detroit. Yes. Nice. And where you were bullied, though. Not nice. No, that was not nice. Not nice. Um, and so you start out in Detroit, Michigan. In, in, in a suburb. Ten mile. For anybody that knows the Eminem movie, you picture eight. <laughs> now go uptown a little bit to ten mile. To the tenth mile. Yeah, yeah, there you would go. Would you? Would it, Would I get like? You would not go like in my neighborhood. You wouldn't go below not nine mile. Yeah. Gotcha. Yeah. But would well, I get I, like weird looks if I was like go to the tenth mile? Well, yes, you would not call it the tenth mile. It would just be <laughs> ten mile. Um, but a lot of people, because uh, there's a whole crazy white flight in Detroit. Mm-hmm. That, and the inner city, uh, that's why it's, you know, kind of abandoned now. Like, my parents grew up in, if you imagine Hancock Park with all those beautiful houses, mm-hmm. abandoned then, just empty. Hmm. The people kept moving, moving further out, you know, 8, 9, 10, 11, 12, further out. And then people didn't even use downtown. My mother was uh, out of the ordinary for her group of friends, and she would bring us downtown to concerts or the art museum, I took art class down at the famous Detroit Art Institute. So I was brought up, you know, seeing all of that. Wow. Yeah. Although I never went to the Motown Museum until later when I went back, I think, for some high school reunion and got to go to uh, Motor City, you know, Motown Museum. Uh-huh. Have you ever been there? No. Fantastic. You walk in and it's still exactly the same in this house, you know, where Barry Gordy started Motown. And you just feel the ghosts there. It's very, it was eerie and exciting. And you just felt all that talent that, you know. Yeah. From Diane Ross on down. Who I did have a meeting with. Oh. That's jumping way ahead (laughs) to all the crazy actresses that I've uh, been, had the pleasure to take meetings with when they all wanted to be the next Lucy. Uh Uh-huh. Which will be a chapter in my book, but. Let's go back to Detroit. Let's Sorry. go back to Detroit. Yeah, there'll be a lot of jumping around here, I have a feeling. Well, no, so so we're getting on to something where you start to talk about how your mother was different. And... Different, and she supported me uh, when um, in my theater career. Yeah. Um, I, I used to come up with plays that I would pull the neighborhood kids into doing in my basement, creating these plays based on, I guess, children's stories or whatnot. And then I... I think what happened was I would ask my second grade teacher if I could put on the play. And for some reason she trusted me and she brought all the other classes in to watch them and we did these little plays and then she called my mother and my mother's like, oh my God, what has he done? (laughs) No, he's like got a talent for theater. You've got to do something about it. And she suggested to my mother this place called Cranbrook Theater School, which unfortunately now is famous for, they also have a... uh, a regular school there where uh, Romney, Mitt Romney went to. Speaking of bullying, and he actually, <laughs> and he, there's a theme here. He actually, I don't know if you know this story, but he bullied a kid there. Really not nice. Anyway, so um, my mother called Cranbrook Theater School and um, they said, I was only seven then. They said, we take eight and up. And she said, but, you know, bring him by, I'll talk to him. So my mother takes me to this meeting, seven years old. And I remember uh, she let me go by myself because one wanted to get real sense of who I was. Uh-huh. Took me into a room. I don't know what we talked about, but like 15 minutes later, she came out and she said to my mother, I'll take them. <laughs> <laughs> and that kind of really changed my life because I just found a home in theater. Yeah. And no matter when I was picked out in school or if I looked weird, when I got to this 
uh, theater camp every summer, I was the most popular kid. I was just, I blossomed. And it was very odd for me in my head to um, work out the two worlds. Like, why didn't kids like me at regular school, but here I was, you know, the number one kid there. Yeah. And it was super fun. I would take the plays. Although the woman did let me into the school, she did have a talking to me years later because I wouldn't do the scripts as written, and which kind of was foreshadowing of my writing career. <laughs> I would somehow embellish them, even sometimes just with costumes. Like if I played a king, I wouldn't just be the king. I would be like a fat king with big shoes or something, and I would do shtick and funny things, and I would get laughs. Uh -huh. And, you know, when I started hearing laughs, that was I just knew that this is what I had to do. And, and so, so this, this is all happening at like 10 years old, you're saying? From like, 7 to up through high school, I would go every summer. Gotcha. And okay. then when I went off to NYU, I would come back during the summer and I ended up teaching there. I actually taught dance there, hmm. not acting. Hmm. And it was in this beautiful meadow and they had a gorgeous outdoor Greek theater where we would do the plays. And uh, that's also when I fell in love with teaching. Yeah. And uh, so I was studying uh, at NYU acting primarily yeah. but also I studied with Joffrey Ballet wow. and uh, and it's a lot yeah, yeah well so going back to the high school yes. time because that's I think such a weird time for all of us yeah um, I mean high school wasn't as weird it was it was when I was in eighth or ninth and I think I just looked weird and my hair was weird, my mm -hmm. teeth were bad, and I was unpopular. Right, everybody goes through that Not stand. everybody. <laughs> there were some really cute people. But, um, you know, and to be honest, I mean, I went through a lot of, uh, you know, suicidal thoughts. Oh. You know, I know we'll get into that. Okay. Uh, um, it was just very difficult because yeah. I just, I felt bad. And so... So the theater thing was that really only going on in the summers? In the summer, I think. I mean, like night, a, in in school, were you also trying to keep up the theater thing by being a part of the theater no, department? No, I didn't did it until ninth grade. I don't know why I didn't, but uh, in ninth grade, I got involved in um, a play, and I really was kind of just a background extra in a play. Uh -huh. But then I was like, oh, well, this is cool to do it in school. And then when I went to high school. Um, it suddenly changed. I also let my, I stopped straightening my hair and had a, a Jufro. And <laughs> people seemed to respond differently. I don't know, maybe I just grew into my looks or something. Something had changed. And I auditioned for, uh, they were doing Cactus Flower, it's a play. And there was no part for me, but I guess the acting teacher liked me so much. She wrote a part into an existing play. She kind of stole the character from the movie. It was in the movie, but not in the play. And so she wrote lines for me. And um, it was a funny part. And, uh, and that was kind of uh, where I really blossomed in high school. Okay. And they yeah. got involved heavily into the theater department. And uh, even as a, uh, my first year, they, you know, thespians, it's a theater organization. The International Thespian Society? Yes. You mean the one that I was co-president of at my high school? I was president. <laughs> uh, but my first year, they they nominated me for president, which was unheard of because it's always the upperclassmen. Yeah, yeah. But I was became so popular with all the kids that uh, 1509 was my troop. Oh, I don't know our troop So, uh, well, if you were really president, you would know that. <laughs> So, um, ah, wow. And I got involved in musicals. I couldn't, unfortunately, sing, but I could dance. So I was a dancer in all the shows. 
and uh, then my senior year, I did uh, you know get the lead in the play. Yeah. And... So and by that time, did you feel more comfortable? Oh when... yes, then it yeah. was. Then I was. Then know, it was like a I had a group of friends, and you get more a click, I think. Yeah. Um, you know, and I would eat lunch in the theater on the stage every day, and yeah. I was friends with, you know, all grades, and, uh, and mm-hmm. then became the um, thespian president in my senior <laughs> year, and I ruled. They would. They. I took theater so seriously. Yeah. And everyone else would say, like, Stan, it's just a play. And I'm like, no, it's not. This is, like, very important. And then the last two years of high school, I went summers to a summer stock theater uh-huh. in New Hampshire, Hampton Playhouse. Yeah. And uh, then I met kids from all over the United States would go there. And they were super serious about it, like I was. So, like, all the theater nerds went there. Yeah. And uh, we did some great plays, and we got to know older kids that were there earning their equity card, and then professional actors. And I still see those people. Like, I'm going to New York in a month, and we have, like, a little reunion of three or four of us all still get together. Wow. And so that's that's been really fun yeah that, but that's also it's not just been really fun it's been like vital to your life and like a way of of you finding your passion and you know your your collective and it saved you almost in a certain in a weird way I feel it did like. it did yeah. I feel so lucky to have had those outlets and um, yeah because I always thought I would go to come to Hollywood and go to like UCLA or USC yeah and then when I went to this playhouse uh, in the summer, they said, if you really want to be an actor, you have got to go to New York and study acting. And Someplace. was the idea for just theater in that regard? Yes. Because I know that's the mentality now of like, if you want to be a theater actor, you go to New York. If you want to be a film actor, you go to LA. Yeah, I think back then it was more like, if you want to be a real actor, you have to first get training. Ah. Now it's like, oh, whoever wants it can be, you know, I yeah. mean, we didn't have YouTube and stuff back then, so you couldn't be an instant television star. Yeah. Although during my childhood, I kept begging my mother to bring me to Hollywood to audition <laughs> for pilots, and she didn't even know what a pilot was. I couldn't believe that. <laughs> um, so uh, then... So you go to New York... Well, I had to audition. So I had this idea, all right, NYU, I have to get into NYU. Yeah. And that was super expensive. And uh, we won't get into the whole family discussion about that. But my mother was like, if this is what you want to do, we'll figure out a way to get you there. But I first had to audition to get in. Mm-hmm. So I worked on a monologue, Dark at the Top of the Stairs. And um, I did it all by myself. And I flew to New York. I didn't tell anybody at school I was going because I didn't want the added pressure. Like, what if I didn't get in? Yeah. I would look like a total fool and lose it. <laughs> so I went there, and uh, there were all these transfer students because that, that program was most, I think, was such a highly regarded program. So there were all these, like, 19, 20-year-olds. At the time, I was only 17. And they all sat down in a room, and everyone got up and had to do their monologue in front of everybody else. And I'm, like, practically... Can we swear on this? If you'd like, yeah. Okay, there'll be a lot of swearing. Apparently shit in my pants. <laughs> uh, I was so fucking nervous. Like, my stomach was just doing in knots. Um, and luckily, and I had blocked it out, and I knew all my hand movements. It, like, you know, it was a little yeah. very staged. Very programmed. It's a little programmed. Yeah. And um, I saw people just getting up and talking, and my um, luckily the beginning of my monologue was... Um, have you ever had the uh, feeling of that pit in your stomach? And 
For some reason, I just threw everything out, all my blocking. I just took a chair, I put it there, and I said those words. And I was feeling that pit in my stomach. Yeah. So it came up very natural. I didn't even know that's what you were supposed to do. I just Something just took over, and I used the nerves, and it worked. Uh, I didn't know, but then I got home, and you know, you wait for your college application. Mm -hmm. I mean, your college acceptance. And back then, it wasn't like online or anything. So they said you get an envelope, mm -hmm. and if the envelope is really, if it's a small like letter, it's small, yeah, that's like no, no, you get in. If you get the, you big, get the package, you get the packet, you are in. So I came home, and my mother was working at that point, and my parents were divorced, and I was only one home except for my dog, my little my little Toto dog, from the Wizard of Oz. And I came home, and I remember going and opening. By that time, I think I was going to the bathroom. In, in, at school, like, at school, like yeah. real in the theater, in the by the stage, so ah. it's a little more private. You know what? We have that in common. I use that the, by the theater the, bathroom a yeah, lot. Yeah, that was it's, it's, it's more comfortable. Yeah, more comfortable. <laughs> and uh, so I remember opening the little mailbox, and there literally must have been like a rice paper in this envelope. <laughs> and I just took a deep breath. I didn't open it, and I walked in the house, and I'm going. My mind is already, I'm much a person that when there's a problem, I already go to like, how are we going to solve this? Uh -huh. So how am I going to go to school the next day to help, you know, some people had heard I had gone or knew I was applying. Yeah. Um, and I sat down, I think I still had my little coat on or my you know, Michigan winter coat or something. And I opened it up and I read like the first lines, you are accepted. I screamed so loud, I think my head hit the ceiling, my dog is barking like crazy. I had got in, I was just, I couldn't believe it. I was so, so excited. So that was really fun. Wow. Yeah. Although my acting teacher was a little upset because I didn't ask her for help in working uh -huh. on the scene. Yeah. Um, that explains a lot. What? About currently. Why? The way you're like... What? The way you get mad at us when it's like, why didn't you bring this up to me? Well, it's different. She really was not, she didn't really know about acting. And I think she felt a little, um, uh, like even when she was directing me in plays and I, I had gone to Summerstock. I was yeah. working with like people that were studying with Strasbourg in a neighborhood yeah. playhouse. And so they taught me about, you know, well, why would I move across the room? So I would ask her, she's directing. She would say, well, go over to that side. Well, but why? My character would stay here. No one had ever, you know, questioned her. <laughs> ah. And I just wanted to get into the character. I to, yeah. You know. Uh, so I think she felt a little, you know, like, you know, it's got to feel yeah. it's a little strange. But anyway, I'm grateful that she believed in me and, you know, gave me parts and supported me at the theater mm -hmm. division. So then I, went, then I went to New York, 17 go to New York years old, scared like you would not believe. <laughs> uh, you know, because when you go to high school, you're kind of like the big fish and the thespian president. Yeah. And then suddenly you're in New York City. The big apple. The big apple. And there's all these people in this program that had auditioned. A lot of them had gone to other schools. I just was like lost. I didn't know what I was going to do. And uh, luckily, I met great people. It would be, you know, because you're in these theater programs. You at NYU, you pick like I picked Circle and Square. There was uh, Stella Adler, Lee Strasberg, Experimental Theater Wing. You pick different ones that you study with. Yeah. And uh, we were just in this tight little group, and you know, maturing and discovering ourselves while... as an actor. And as a person, I mean, you know. No, no, but like, I mean, your focus is on acting. It like... was. Uh, that's what. NYU was, it was 
uh, mostly acting, but you also took academics at NYU. So it was a right, right. split. I think what I'm getting at is like now you're a writer. You know what I mean? Like, oh yes. How the how the hell did that happen? Like where? Yeah. Where, so in terms of like tracking the arc of where the we are arc. today. Oh yeah. So I found when uh, I started auditioning a little bit in the end of my NYU days. Yeah. Um, I uh, was doing an internship at a, a theater management company and slash casting office called Theater Now. Okay. And Les Moonves, who's the head of CBS, was actually an account there. But yeah, I, he took pity on me because he's like, you're smart. I'm not going to make you do the run, like the stupid runs. Like you go do the bank runs, the important things with the money, you know, that, <laughs> from the different Broadway shows. Yeah, what was his position at this place? Just an account. He was an accountant? He had come from California where he was kind of a like a guest star actor, uh-huh. like on like police, like cop shows. Yeah. And then he was like, I didn't want to be an actor. I'm going to be an accountant in theater. <laughs> Uh, nice guy, uh, but obviously had other ambitions. Yeah. And uh, it was great working there because I got to see literally every Broadway show. We'd get, always get free tickets every night. Mm. We'd want to fill the houses. And so I, there's like two seasons where I literally saw every every bomb, everything. And it was exciting. <laughs> yeah, to, educational to, probably. Really yeah. educational. So I love that. Um, so you're working so there. So working there. And then um, I started... I always had these ideas in my head, and I even back in Michigan when I was in high school, I had ideas, but I was not a writer or a reader. I hated reading. Okay, so you're talking about ideas for shows and for movie movies. ideas. Okay. And I thought, like, I knew I had to have someone that could complete me in that way. That was more of a writer. Like, what do I do with all these great ideas? Like, I would think of an actor, and yeah. why are they not doing this movie or this TV show? And actually, in my because I was not playing sports. I had created a network in my bedroom and I had made one of those grids and I counter programmed seven days a week. How crazy is that? Did just my own So network, you essentially did all the work of a of, of, of your guys. own network. Yes. yes. Did, and I but made no the, broadcasting, right? You didn't have anything no, I had to no, show. I know. Pro- I just came up with the idea. You just spent of your free show, time putting together a network. But I had to come up with shows. Right. I had to develop them, create them. I even made little ads. I would take shows that bombed on other networks yeah. that I felt needed to continue. I would take movies that I thought were popular or something that they should be a TV show. Stan's movie of the week. And I had a movie <laughs> week. They were like, I love Lily Tomlin, so I gave her her own variety show. <laughs> You know, I was, I was very kind about that. Um, so I always wanted to do TV, but I didn't know how to write. So then at NYU, I met through another friend, uh, Jim Berg, who was studying to be uh, uh, in journalism. Mm-hmm. And so he was a writer. And we just started, like, being funny together. And right. then we said, um, I said, would you ever want to think of an idea to write for a sitcom or something? Because, oh, I've always wanted to do that. So we met in between classes and after-school jobs. And we started to write a pilot, not knowing you should write a spec script first, so we wrote a pilot. Mm-hmm. And then he found a book with um, a bunch of agents. We sent it out. And in my senior year, we got a very small agent in New York. Mm-hmm. And he's... But I feel like at the time... I feel like if you say that now, like, we got a small agent, that almost means, like, nothing. But at that time... I oh, feel like yeah. if you got a small agent, it's like, oh, agent. that's possible. Like, you know what I mean? It was There's huge. possibilities. It was yeah. huge. And he sent our stuff out to California. There you go. See? And then someone responded who worked at Paramount. And um, uh, 
then at that point I was was this pilot something that got made eventually like do we know no, no, oh, okay no, no. Um, and uh, I think at that I but then I just graduated and I was working in casting for a producer and casting director in New mm-hmm. York and uh, so we had vacation time and so we both decided to come to California and meet this guy and have other meetings mm-hmm. and this guy Gary Keeper kind of became our mentor and he said, you know, you can't just write pilots. Back then, you only could write a spec script of an existing series. Mm-hmm. So we just started writing a bunch of those. And then I was really tired of living in, uh, I had a fifth floor walk-up studio, which would be the size of my coffee table now. <laughs> and I was sick of being poor. I mean, it was, I just couldn't get a job. And yeah. I, was in, I was doing extra work in like Woody Allen movies to pay rent, but I didn't have money. And California just was a dream. So I told my writing partner, uh, June, a year after I graduated, that I'm, I have to go experience it. And I had a friend living in Woodland Hills who said, I'll rent you a, one of the rooms in this house where I'm at for $100. I'm like, okay. What? Why not? And my brother <laughs> lent me his car. I know. Like, it's nothing. Yeah. He's just like, I'm, you know, it's, it, I know it's nothing, but we got to have something coming yeah. in. And, you know, electricity, I think I paid, and food and all yeah. that. But. My brother was living in San Francisco. He lent me his car for the summer. I came down, started having some meetings. My writing partner came out um, for one of the meetings, and then he like knew that he had to be here. Yeah. And he moved out in September, and I worked at the Vista Movie Theater um, in Silver Lake. Okay. And um, luckily, uh, by May, we kept writing uh, spec scripts. And then one we wrote was just like exploded. It was just like everyone like what was it? It was a cheer spec. There you go. And um, that season we got like you know all these offers to go on staff. Wow. Yeah. And so it was like we became the flavor of the month. How many spec scripts did you say you'd written? Four. Up, up until then? Yeah, that was the fourth one. So I that was think. the fourth one. Yeah. That's not that much. It seems like I feel like. Uh, when you're getting to the third, you're going, why isn't anybody, like, and people would say, well, it's funny, but it's uh, this problem with it. Yeah. Okay. But you got the characters, because in a spec script, you yeah. got to be not only funny, you have to have structure, you have to tell a good story. Yeah. Uh, and it just tested, like someone said, we all have piles of spec scripts, yeah. and now it's all online. Guess, yeah, you know what it is, is like, I'm probably, because one of my qu- questions for you is like, how do you write so much? Because of all the scripts I'm always seeing that you have yes. in our class, yeah. there's a lot. And I'm just like, oh my God, how does he keep writing all this much? Um, and I feel like that's my millennial brain programmed like, oh, computers, you just type it out. Right. But like back then, I'm sure you weren't yeah. using a computer. Um, yeah. So to put out a spec script took a lot of... A lot of, of whiteout, yes. A lot of whiteout, a lot of going back. and like. Yes. But could you imagine how many... How, how different more it would we would write. Like, yeah. How much more would you have written... We were still pretty like, prolific. We wrote a lot. Yeah. I mean, we worked, you know, five, six, seven days a week on, on it. And we yeah. were just so determined. And we would go because we couldn't afford any to do anything, even yeah. to eat, that we would go to tapings of shows for that was our entertainment. So we just, we were soaking in everything we could. Yeah. And, um, you know, we get little meetings here and there. But um, then this one just exploded and. We took the job that uh, a friend of ours, uh, the mentor, he got a, he was working at a production company and their pilot got picked up. 
And that was one of, I think, our first big meeting. And we had never really been to a staffing meeting before. So we were waiting outside in the outer office, and there were two writers in there. And we heard laughing from inside, and we're like, oh my God, we, we didn't write jokes. We were supposed to write jokes. Like They're going in there like doing a comedy yeah. routine. That's how a comedy writer does it. We didn't know. Uh -huh. But that wasn't the case. They were just going in and being themselves and being funny. And I guess whatever we did when we went in, they liked. And, uh, and they liked our script. And uh, we took that offer of that show. And when we got the offer, it was like, I mean, it was such a big deal. Yeah. That I um, remember, I didn't have a credit card at the time. Mm -hmm. I think I had my mother's credit card. <laughs> And what we decided to do, because they were like, you're starting on Monday, and this was like Thursday. We decided for some crazy reason, we, I don't know why we didn't even call, we were going to go to New York for the weekend. And I think we just drove to the airport with our parents' credit cards. Like, how crazy is that? Yeah. But I remember I went to the Vista movie theater, I gave them the key, and I said, you know, they're like, no, you keep it just in case the show doesn't work out. And I'm like, no, <laughs> you keep the key. And I remember my writing partner's driving, and I'm out the window screaming, "This is life!" <laughs> you know, we had a job. We had yeah. a job with like a lot of money, even yeah. though like it could have dried up after 13 episodes. It was all it was ordered for. Flew to New York, came back, was on the Sony lot. We get there, of course, two hours early, and we were so nervous. We we're like, you know, peeing in every bathroom to the office. And then, look at look at how far you've come. I know. <laughs> see, it's the theme. And um, then we get to the office, and we were so early. We we're the first ones there, and they said, "And this is your office." I'm like, "We get an office?" And they had these two big desks, as they call them, partners' desks, desks facing each other. And we're there, and we put our feet up on the desk. We're like, "Oh, joking! Can you believe we're like, oh, we're you know, at a big studio?" And then all the old, older writers came in and saw these little kids. I mean, I probably looked like I was 15. Yeah. Sitting there, already the hate. How old us. were you at that time? Twenty-two. Um, wow! I know, I know. How crazy is that? That's crazy. Even like, I feel like today's standards. Yeah, it was bit. crazy. Like... It was crazy. I was very lucky. And maybe, maybe twenty-three or turned twenty-three during the first show. Anywhere around that time. <laughs> and suddenly we were again. You know, every agent took us out, and they're all trying to woo us. And, uh, you know, they're like, oh, we'll take you to the Playboy Club. I'm mean, the Playboy Mansion. <laughs> and we wanted to say, like, you know, that's kind of a waste, but I'm kind of curious. I did end up actually going there years later. Uh -huh. uh, I was friendly with Sandra Bernhardt, and she was um, in the magazine, and so yeah. she had a big party there. Just out of curiosity, I mean, were you out at this time? Like, No, no one was out at this right. time. Right, so, it's, so <laughs> it's interesting. Well, that's like, we're going to take you boys to the Playboy you know, Mansion. Like, yeah, sure. And, and you're like, yeah, 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 yeah. Totally. We had to pretend. <laughs> Um, wow. Yeah, it was funny. One meeting we went for a staff job, um, the executive producer uh, said to us, so you guys are violets. And we were like, how does he know we're gay? <laughs> we didn't realize violets was the name of the NYU team. Yeah. Yeah. The fighting violets, right? But we had never been to a game with NYU. I was too busy, you know, going to clubs and whatnot. <laughs> so that was a little panicky. Um, you just, at that time... You know, I've done panels like at Outfest, and yeah. people can't believe, you know, all these writers have done Will and Grace, and they're like, oh, it's so great. And like, no, we couldn't be out. We yeah. just couldn't, because it was an all-boys network. Yeah. I remember writing Gary Marshall about, you know, trying to get on one of his shows, because we had read that he plays basketball, and we're like, we got to practice basketball. That's how you get on a writing staff. <laughs> um, 
And then someone had asked us, they were doing an article about being out in Hollywood uh, for the LA Weekly, you know, newspaper, the weekly... Current current times or back then? Back then. Oh. And everyone's like, you can't put, you can't get your picture taken for that. You can't even yeah. put your name on that. And for some reason we were just like, what the hell? Yeah. You know, and at that time we had done, um, we did the first season of Golden Girls, I think, by then. Okay. And so, uh, like... Uh, Estelle Getty knew we were. Okay. I remember, like, I think our first day there, she came over to the side and she goes, you're one of us. I'm like, well, you're not gay. But she had just done Torch Song Trilogy, and uh-huh. so she had invited us out to dinner, and I was like, oh, my God, we're going to dinner with Estelle Getty, just the three of us. And we get there, and there'd be, like, a table full of 20 gay guys that had all done either the national tour or the Broadway show of it. Mm-hmm. Um, so we said, yes, we'll do the article. And then, you know, a bunch of magazines picked up on it or yeah. asked to do pieces on us because we were like probably the first uh, comedy writing. There aren't many, but still, but yeah. uh, back then there were not. I mean, yeah. um, so that was kind of cool. I gotcha. Yeah. S- speaking of on staying on this subject um, and doing my research, yes. I always research my oh, guests no, before. No, I'm Super preliminary research, yeah. but... According to your Wikipedia article, oh no! <laughs> what did I say? And you are being, um, you know, you and James Jim. have, or Jim, you yeah. know, you guys have a joint, uh, yes, joint page. Wikipedia, yeah. But it said that I you need guys to do my own page. You, yes. you guys, it said you guys wrote a lesbian kiss episode for Roseanne. Yes. To which, if you go to lesbian kiss episode, that's an actual thing. That like in the nineties, there was like a wave of episodes in which main characters would have a coming out not a coming out but like a a lesbian kiss um and i mean the wikipedia article says it's for sweeps you know to raise the ratings um but like are you aware of that all like uh, that that's an actual thing that like no that like shows were doing lesbian kiss episodes you know maybe after us at that point you could never even do it you couldn't even have like right right 30-something, I think, was going to have two guys just in bed, not kissing, not touching, and the network said, you can't show that. This is before Ellen came out on TV. Right, right. And Roseanne wanted to do this, a kiss episode. Yeah. And wanted to do a, something with gay. Uh-huh. And then we came up with the idea of, what if she got kissed? Because she thinks she's so liberal, and then what does that do to her and everybody around her? And Did she like it? Did she not? And so we thought that was very interesting. Yeah. And we wrote it, and uh, I think during the Northridge earthquake happened that. It was that monumental. You caused it. caused. It was all our fault. Well, probably some right-wing Christian people might say that. Yeah. Um, <laughs> Don't worry. I doubt I have any right-wing Christians you listening never know. to this. We you love never them. Know, we love them. We love them for their sins. Thanks for listening. Yeah. To the one person. <laughs> probably last. Uh, lost them out. <laughs> um, and then the network was like, you can't film this. And she was like, we're going to film it. And they filmed it. And it was also hard to get who that actress was to play yeah. the girl, the lesbian. And we ended up with Meryl, Meryl Hemingway. And then uh, they filmed it and the network said, we can't air it. And Roseanne, to her credit, and Tom Arnold, they were married at the time, um, said, we'll buy it back and paid for it to be on HBO if you don't want to air it. Ooh. Like, they were that. Yeah. So it kind of pushed ABC into a corner. But it was very odd because I would be writing on the show and working, like, crazy hours. 
I would come home and watch the news and it would be like on the news. They'd be talking about this. So that was like just so strange. Yeah. Um, so they said, well, we're going to edit it down and not show her the face. And all this stuff was going back and forth that we weren't even privy to. Mm-hmm. And we didn't know if it was going to, what it was going to look like when it would be airing. Like maybe they would just show it like the back of her head and not even see it. Mm-hmm. And Jim and I decided that we would have a benefit for the, when they said they picked a day to air it for GLAAD, which is the uh, media organization yeah. for gay people, to monitor it. So to raise money, since there was all this media attention around. So uh, we had this huge place in Hollywood, and like it was like the news and CNN, and we were doing these interviews, and it was just like packed with our like people we knew, friends. I mean, just like hundreds and hundreds of, probably 500 people in this place, and big TVs. Show comes on, we don't know like what's gonna happen, what's gonna happen. And then when they show the actual kiss, I mean I'll never forget, like the place just erupted in applause because we had never ever seen anything like that on, on television before. Yeah. So, you know, I feel so you know, grateful to have had that experience. Yeah. Uh, with that show, although it was very difficult to work on the show and be involved in all of that. But obviously the outcome of it was was pretty great. Yeah. Um I guess now staying kind of on the same subject, but just focusing on the on the idea of like a network. Like you've been in network television for a long time, mm-hmm. and like the state of the network television as an idea Today? right now yeah. is like so, it's in trouble to a certain degree. And well, so it's, always, it's gone through many times. I've heard so many times. Yeah. Uh, but this, oh, this, comedy's this is, dead. And then the comedies will come back. I think what's what I'm getting at is the end of with, network television. Well, yeah, in terms of like, yeah, it's gonna be. You over. don't have to put up with that when you're at Netflix or no I mean, Amazon. That's, that's and, the beauty of it. I mean, when we started, it was like three networks and Fox. Right, and they and had then, power, and they like you had to have that fight when Roseanne had to leverage, uh, you know, sending it to HBO and all that. But now it seems like. If that situation were to arise today, I mean, obviously it wouldn't There's be the so equivalent. There's so many outlets, yes. There's so many outlets, but also I feel like networks would be in a position to be like, we'll put whatever on uh, to a certain degree. Like they want to push the envelope as much as they possibly can. Within reason. Within reason, yes. obviously maintaining yes. their standards and practices. But there's still things like we wrote um, uh, a lesbian uh, and a father odd couple script. Mm-hmm. And then we were told, oh no, well, we're doing the new normal, so we can't have two gay shows on. I mean, there's still that, you know, and then when Ellen yeah. did her show, The One Big Happy, well, that bombed, so we can't try another lesbian show. So there's still, like, you know, they can have 5,000, you know, uh, criminal shows and murders and NCSI, whatever, but we can only have one gay show. So right. there's still some hurdles, mm-hmm. but obviously there's so many avenues now, yeah. you know, transparent and blah, 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 yeah. that we can show other shows, which is great. So I guess, do you not feel that the networks are in trouble and are in a position where they need as much as they can? I think they're in trouble just because it's a... It's like an outdated form of... Format, yes. And so many people and young people don't even watch television. I mean, I'm watching less television. So if I'm not even watching (laughs) it, then, you know, who is watching TV? I mean, there's still a lot of money to be made in it, but obviously the whole economic structure has been completely different. Mm-hmm. I mean, when I was starting, like every job you made more money or I went on a lot of years where I had these huge overall deals at a studio where they tie you up and own you and all your ideas. 
in those years we didn't work on TV shows because we didn't have to. We just wrote pilots. Mm -hmm. um, all that money, luckily, I mean, you're sitting in the house that paid for it. <laughs> uh, now you don't do that. You have to, if you get a studio deal, you've got to work on a bazillion shows. And um, they don't make those kind of deals anymore. Yeah. Um, and everyone, you know, now they say, here's what you're being paid. You don't get to dictate it because... Yeah. I mean, unless you're, you know, a huge producer. Yeah. And, and now... And the staffs are smaller. I mean, on Roseanne, we had 21 writers. And, you know, now sometimes you get by with five or six. Yeah. And then, you know, you have to figure out ways to save on money. Like when we did our last sitcom, Rita Rocks and Lifetime, sometimes they would make us film two episodes per week. Um, or they would... We'd have to put in product placement. So we'd like, how do you get in like Glade Air Freshener and talk about it in the show? So we got kind of smart at it. We decided the lead character would work at like a Bed Bath and Beyond. So that way, when she yeah. says, you know, look at our, you know, Glade Air Freshener, it's you know has a new pumpkin scent. You're not going. Why is she saying that if she was you know working you know, you know at a I don't know McDonald's or something? Yeah, was it Bed Bath and Beyond or Bath and Body Works? It was bed, well, we called it Bed and Bath Max. Oh, okay. Gotcha. We made up a little, our own little At name. a Bed, Bath, and Beyond Bad type store. Type store, yes. <laughs> gotcha. Although um, their smocks were very similar. <laughs> so. Um, so you as a writer, mm -hmm. I guess, what would you say has changed in terms of the dream of a writer? Like, what what is your now ultimate because it seems like most writers are like oh if i can get a netflix deal that's great because i have creative freedom mm -hmm. i might not get paid as much but i can write almost whatever i want and netflix will just write me a check i mean is that kind of what you're going for you my dream i don't know like no i mean i have a pilot at amazon and believe me when they told us how much they're paying us you're like that's it <laughs> you can't survive on that you can have more freedom to do what you want to do yeah. but the money is completely people i think young writers still dream of doing a network because yeah. it's just still a lot of money when you think of all the money being made on something like a big big bang uh -huh. as much as people think you know multicams aren't cool that is making so much money worldwide still yeah. still you know so there's still i think a time period that you're still going to be seeing shows like that um uh -huh. less and less but yeah uh so that's still where the money the big money is yeah but um, now you can fulfill your dreams in other ways and then also you can make it yourself like I'm putting together a web series now so and I get to direct finally and so everyone and you can make it you can use your phone now and just yeah. you know there's no excuse not to put something together if it's something if you really have passion for yeah. but if you want to work on a network show that you still have to go through uh, The Ringer which yeah. is so much more competitive now as well yeah. like it's it's less spots Less spots and more people. Yeah. And people have seen like how it can change your life or they, you know, it just seems more accessible to get a job doing yeah. that. I'm curious because somewhere along the way we kind of lost track of theater in a way. We um, did, didn't we? We did, but no, I feel like that's... In my life, yes. Yeah, but I feel like that's reminiscent of kind of what happened in your life is you mm -hmm. come to Hollywood and you're writing and writing and writing like crazy. And is it is that the case that theater just was not a thing in I your life? I would go to theater, but I would never even think of... Uh, I mean, even then, I once I stopped acting, I didn't really think of writing for theater or being... Yeah. Uh, I loved New York and I appreciated it, but it just seemed far, far away. Uh-huh. 
And um, then it came back into my life. Um, I was writing on Gilmore Girls, and I got a call one day from um, an agent who happened to be Sean Hayes' agent. And I thought, oh, he must be pitching an actor for Gilmore Girls. And he said to me, no, I'm pitching you to be a host showrunner on this reality show that Sean is producing at Bravo. Kind of like a Project Greenlight before sitcoms called Situation Comedy. Okay. And like, I love reality shows in my ears. I love Project Greenlight. I'm like, and I've seen like every real world episode. I'm like, yes, I'm in. So I had to go for a meeting at Bravo. I don't think Andy Cohen was in the meeting at that one, but at some point he was. And he was like a baby executive there. Uh-huh. And um, at the time, so Jim and I, I told Jim, and so we went in. And uh, I didn't realize at the time it was actually an audition. Mm-hmm. I'm just so used to going to writer meetings, mm-hmm. but I didn't realize, no, they want to see your personality, how you would be on camera. So we got the job, and then Jim didn't want to do it. Mm. He didn't want to be on camera. And I'm like, oh my God, I've got, this is like my dream <laughs> job. And I was like, I have to figure out a way. And um, my friend Maxine Lapidus, so I knew a little bit a writer. And so I called her and asked her if she wanted to go in with me. And I thought it would be good to have a man-woman combination. Mm-hmm. We went in. We got the job. And uh, they were so sweet because they accommodated me knowing I had a day job. So they uh, set the shooting from like 7 in the morning till 11 in the afternoon. I would jump in the car and go from Sunset Gower Studios to Warner Brothers and then be on call during the day. And then I would jump in the car at like 6, come back and shoot from like 6.30 to midnight, the reality show. And then come home and have to read scripts from both that and Gilmore Girls and do notes. But I was never happier. It was so great. Yeah. How much sleep were you getting at that time? (laughs) Zero. It didn't matter. I was like writing on a great TV show. And yeah, you were uh, living off of the off of the high of like all that. Yes, and then doing this reality show and did it know, ever catch up with you? Like, did you ever like all I still have collapse? <laughs> no, no, I know I, I I'm fine, uh, really. And that's when I got to love coffee and espresso, and and then Red uh-huh. Bull came into my life, sugar free. <laughs> and um, so, so from that, I was I was having dinner with Sean and Todd Milliner, his producing partner, and Todd's boyfriend. Uh, Michael Matthews was running a small theater, the Celebration Theater in Hollywood. And I was just saying about my love for theater and I would love to, you know, get back into it. And he goes, direct to play for us. Huh. And I was like, okay, I will. And I'm like, <laughs> oh no, now what am I doing? <laughs> and so we talked about doing like Golden Girls, you know, scripts live. And uh-huh. then, uh, so we ended up, um, they put me in their season. I got to direct this play called Gemini which was a, one of the plays I saw in New York when I was at NYU, and it was one of the first plays, I think the only play, first play I saw that had a gay character in it. I couldn't believe it was on stage. Uh-huh. And it was so exciting. It was one of the, actually one of the longest-running plays on Broadway. Uh, Danny Aiello was in it and some great people. And so um, I brought them the play. They loved it, and they got this whole cast together, and I got Mindy Sterling from Austin Powers, who I heard wanted to do theater, and um, that's how we got to be friendly, and she did the play, and uh, it was very successful, and kind of launched me back into doing theater. Yeah. And it was also, through that, I was used to my whole career writing with somebody, and suddenly I was doing a reality show on my own, really, 
and I just got more confident in who I was and what I wanted to do with my life. And it, you know, when you're in a partnership, like any relationship, it's about compromise. And you know, if the other person isn't into it, you just don't do it. Mm -hmm. And suddenly, I was like, no, if it's something I want to do, like this show, reality show, I figured out a way to do it. And I thought, wait a minute, I'm going to do that about everything. <laughs> yeah. If I have an idea and he doesn't, Jim doesn't like it. How am I going to still do it? Okay. So then from, you know, we kept doing our TV stuff and then I got more involved in theater and got to direct a couple other plays mm -hmm. and that was very exciting. And then um, I was having drinks in New York with a friend of mine, Larry Hirshhorn, who's a big Tony Award winning, multiple Tony Award winning producer. And, you know, we're a couple martinis in and he's like, why do you keep directing revivals, you're a writer, write a play. And like, he said, you should write like Neil Simon, like write your own life. And I'm like, no one wants to see my life on stage. And I leave him, That's I'm sitting true. in a the theater. Well, I just like, who wants to care about a writer? I don't know, just, to, I could think that was interesting. And then I'm sitting in this play and I'm thinking, all of a sudden the idea came to me, what I do when we have pilots, we make these actors sit in a waiting room to audition with their competition. Like, oh my God, this would be such a great play. Get four women. It's reminiscent of like Golden Girls and all those yeah, female yeah. things I like to write. And um, um, that was meet and greet. That was meet and greet. Yeah. So that was the first play play. I had written with uh, another writer I brought into it. For years and years and years, like, I don't know, 15, 20 years ago, I wanted to do a musical using TV theme show songs. Jim was like, I don't see the musical. I'm like, no, this could be huge. So then I found this other guy that had done Punch-Up for us, Christian McLaughlin, and mm -hmm. we wrote that, and that kind of took off. Gotcha. Um, I skipped the whole movies and Brady Bunch and all that. Did, I, I, yeah. did you find it easy to like just write a play, I feel like? No, it was scary, and a musical I knew nothing about, and the play just seemed so long, but also like going from TV to movies, I like TV you can kind of figure out, it's a half hour, and I, we literally studied when we started like in New York, there were places you could read scripts online. So I would just watch TV shows and mark down, all right, they had three scenes, a commercial, three scenes and a commercial. That's how I... That's how you got the form. I had wow. to figure out the structure myself. Yeah. Um, so then, like during one of the, like, the phases of, oh, com TV sitcoms are dead, we thought we should write a movie. Uh, so we took a Robert McKee story structure class. And then Jim and I came up with this idea of this movie called The Ruthie Ruddick Story. And uh, it was about a suburban housewife in 1969 who gets involved in... Um, she goes to Greenwich Village to save her sister from becoming a hippie and got involved in the women's movement, the black movement, and the gay movement. And we got the script to Lily Tomlin, and she wanted to do it. And so there was a huge bidding war with that, and that kind of got us into movies at a time when sitcoms were mm -hmm. on the wane. So then we started doing both, and so that was kind of fun to jump back and forth to both and do rewrites yeah. and stuff like that. Um, so you write Meet and Greet, yes, and you've written a couple other plays. Um, one of which, though, is a complete departure, it seems, from which Suicide Notes. Yes, um, in their own words. Suicide Notes in their own words is the, the full, full title. Full title, yes. Uh, casually referred to as Suicide Notes. Yes, but. That why how, <laughs> what are you doing that for? Well, no, it's just um, 
you start writing for theater and then you, I know oh. you, I know you have this story personally. Yes. Um, this personal attachment to a, to your own suicide, um, experience. Yes. Um, whether it be in high school or your friend, I mean, I guess, how did that come about in terms of so you start writing for theater and then you dramatize this very close, that's like, I, I can't imagine how scary that must have been, you know? Yes, was always writing with somebody else and always comedy, yeah. which I love. And I think you can still have lessons and learn stuff, but when people are laughing, it's just, I don't people seem more open to knowledge coming into their head. So all my stuff has um, a deep, hopefully a deeper meaning underneath it that I want to say. Mm-hmm. Uh, but then a very, very, very close friend of mine, Kevin Gill, killed himself uh, three years ago, uh, May. And... Um, you know, it was obviously very devastating and someone that was saw all my theater and um, then uh, actually in this room standing across there on a Sunday, uh, a friend of his called and uh, this group of his close friends that only saw each other at his birthdays, we kind of took over when he did this and we you know, called and t- we wanted to figure out like why and how and we each took on different activities. Some people took on like the service we were going to have and other stuff with this house. And I kind of became the person to deal with the outside world and people telling people or like on Facebook, people would see that something happened and they would write and say, does he in a car accident? Do you have cancer? And I would contact them privately and say, you know, call me if you want information. So I would tell these people when they would call, I'd have to relive the experience every single time these calls would come in and there were a lot and it was very emotional and I told them as they wanted to ask questions I would answer any of their questions and told them some people wanted to know everything I would tell them how we did it um, and then one Sunday one of the core friends called and said uh, I don't think you should be telling everything to people Kevin was a very private person and uh, I don't think he would like that and made me feel really bad about it. And then it got me thinking as I talked through with friends and said, they would say, you can't feel bad. I thought, this is the problem. This is why he did it. He had no one to really talk to about it. And the problem with suicide, and the more I started studying it, that's the big thing, is that so many people have gone through it, but no one is actually speaking about it. So all of a sudden it hit me, if I, some way I could use my art and my craft and maybe write something about it and that's when I came up with the idea like vagina monologues or love letters if I could come uh, if I could use real suicide notes he did leave a suicide note not to me to his ex-lover I did get to read it once the ex brought it to memorial service and let us each of the core group go off and read it Um, so I started collecting them I just thought I'll just collect these online I'll just google suicide notes and up came Kurt Cobain and war veterans and victims of bullying and I would copy paste them put them in a separate folder and every so often I would print them out and sit here and read them and they were so heavy Mm -hmm. I was like oh my god how can I do this and I just took me so long to get through them and so then I started categorizing them and thinking of like how I would do this in a play and some people said to me are you crazy who's gonna want to sit through that well maybe I'll find a funny one there's not funny ones out there. There's some that maybe have a... Well, there's a couple that are like... Slightly humorous. 
like George Sanders, an actor, just the way he was kind of flip about it. Um, So then once I found kind of a way to present it, I started narrowing it down. And then I really had to think, like, who's in there? Like, Hitler left a suicide note, but I thought, I don't want anyone, like, a killer or murderer like that. I wanted, and not really people that had this, um, like, uh, a, a disease or cancer where they had no hope to live. Like, I feel like if you have something like that and you want don't want to live, that's your own choice. But there's another category of people that just didn't see a way out or dealing with depression, um, that had no one to talk to, things like that. Mm. So then um, uh, Matthew Quinn, who is a producer of mine that I've done a lot of plays with and is one of the people that runs uh, the Hollywood Fringe Festival, said, you know, this would be a perfect Fringe show. Why don't you just do it as an hour piece? Because I always thought saw four actors, two younger, two older, with some narration in between letters and some visuals. So we had a reading in this living room, and it was like, you know, an hour and a half, <clears throat> and just kind of all, a little bit all over the place. Mm-hmm. And I just, after, talked to people that, that sat here through it, and they, I just, I got what I had to do instantly. And again, this was some, the first thing I had done on my own which was kind of scary, but I just, I was driven to do this. And I also had a deadline. If I was serious, uh, we had to do it this year. For the fringe. Yeah, Yeah. we had to do it. And this was like, you know, February or something. Like, holy moly. And I just, like that weekend, I was just like telling, I can't talk to you. And I would just sit there and like edit and edit edit down and get it. And like, I was like, oh my God, I think I have it. And um, then I got this job in Moscow uh, to do a Russian Roseanne adaptation to consult on that. So I went up and did that. <laughs> and luckily that kind of ended and I was like, okay, we could pull the trigger. If I can get four actors, yeah. we'll be in Fringe. And so we did that this past year at Fringe with an amazing cast. Yeah. And uh, it's probably the most powerful, profound thing I've ever, ever been involved with. I didn't even know. Uh, what it would open up for people. Mm. Um, and after each show at Fringe, I would get up and talk a little bit. And every time I would mention my friend Kevin, it would like get lodged in my throat. It was still very raw and emotional. And then I would ask people in the audience, uh, how many people here have had suicide touch their lives? And you'd see like almost everyone raise their hand. And then everyone would see that, and like no one would want to leave the theater. Mm-hmm. And we would spend, you know, a long time out on the side on the side street. People just would share their stories, whether they had thought about it or tried it, or their parents or rel- whoever friends. And so it came to kind of a, a higher calling, so to speak. Yeah. And seeing how it uh, affected, especially when young people would come. Mm-hmm. And then they would go. Uh, a friend of mine was very scared to bring her daughter to it. I don't know what she thought would happen. Yeah. And her daughter was so moved that the next day she contacted a girl that she knew at school and hadn't really talked to her for like three or four months and said, can I come over? And she came over and she brought the program which had the suicide prevention hotline on it, the number, and said, I know you've been going through things. If you ever need to talk to somebody, you should call it. And the girl was like, no one's ever mentioned anything like this to her. Mm-hmm. So the fact that this could have saved that girl's life, I mean, it, it, it was pretty intense. And then every time, once people started talking about it, uh, even online, I would like open, you know, Facebook in the morning and like people that I didn't even know would write me letters or people I do know would send me messages. 
you know, it's so great what you're doing. This is what I went through. Um, so it just feels great to start the dialogue and uh, hopefully to take this play mm -hmm. elsewhere, yeah. um, which I'm hoping to do. Has it opened a door for you as a writer in terms of exploring dramatic content and other issues that like... It's you opened know, the door to me maybe writing on my own, which is okay. exciting, possibly more dramatic stuff. Um, uh -huh. I still love to make people laugh. Yeah. Um, but we'll see. Who knows? Yeah. So it's funny. It's funny that you mentioned that because it's a running theme. The last, well, I mentioned it in the last episode, and before that, I talked about it with I think Robin Riker and um, this idea that comedy and drama are almost outdated terms. It seems like because everything's kind of a dramedy mm -hmm. uh, nowadays. Uh, a lot of movies seem to like have really funny like Foxcatcher I was laughing in the middle of it and like it has some funny moments like you know what I mean like there's this well, weird it's more like real life right and that's You're what everybody keeps day. saying yeah. everybody keeps saying that's more like real life yeah. is that there's funny in the drama and there's drama in the funny yeah. and like do you feel that way I guess you feel that way too yeah and, but I've always felt the way I've always my all my pieces have both mm -hmm. um, that's why it's interesting like when I went to Moscow and I'm almost teaching these writers there and producers about comedy because I'm also helping develop a Meredith Tyler Moore uh, series oh. and you know a lot of times people think comedy and so they think oh what's funny like they were doing um, the Rhoda character and they had pitched and she carries around an accordion I'm like well, why they're like it's funny and like I said I think you're thinking of it backwards it's got to come from the reality of the character, not just because it's something that's funny. And I think a lot of new writers make that same mistake. They'll say, and a lot of times in writer's room, that excuse, it got a laugh on stage. I'm saying, but what kind of laugh? And where does it come from? And is it coming, the character has to come from a reality of that character saying that. Otherwise, you're pulled from it. I mean, even, you know, just watching some of the new shows this season, I'm going, well, Nobody would really say that. Why? Why do we have to? And that's when it seems really fakey. Yeah. To me. Mm -hmm. To me. Um, I guess sort of the last sort of subject I want to talk about is uh -huh. your relationship with actors. Uh huh. I guess we'll start with the. Uh, so we're talking a lot about theater and how you're getting back into theater. And at this time that you're starting to write your own plays and stuff, this vote comes in for Equity. You were staunchly against the 99 seat. All the shows I've done here have been, uh, except for uh, when I took the music, TV theme song musical to New York and at Nymph, it was at this huge signature theater on 42nd Street. So that, I mean, the biggest thing I've done. Yeah. But everything else has been these 99-seat theaters or less yeah. here. And I have used a lot of equity people and well-known actors. And basically, this new thing that equity was proposing would make it completely impossible for me to ever do any of the plays that I do because we do them on shoestring. But I mean, literally, mm -hmm. a you're shoestring. essentially asking actors to do it pro bono or like I pay them. I mean, equity law was you had to pay nine dollars a show. I paid more, a lot more than that. But equity is saying now their new idea is that you have to pay for nine dollars an hour for rehearsal which right. would completely stop most productions. You can never do any big uh, production with many actors because that's why you can only do like one or two person shows. Yeah. I guess uh, like as an actor, we work a lot for free when we're doing theater. 
or well, when we're writers below minimum rage when we're writing we're writing theater on spec every play i've ever written has right been on spec i've written all these plays i spend you know i write for money and tv and movies during the weekend weekends all weekend long totally on spec yeah i've made very little money on theater so far can i knock on wood yeah. <laughs> yes um <laughs> with the hope that these plays will eventually become something right and so like and so I don't even get nine dollars. Yeah, and essentially this equity vote comes around in which it's being forced, like uh, theaters are being forced to pay money that they don't really have. have. This and idea that these producers down. have money to throw a, to throw at, you know, of course we would love to give actors more money, but it should come when money is made. You could build that into a contract; they would make more money. Right. But you can't expect people up front. Why it's so hard to put on theater in LA to get people to theater in LA? Why would you put even the tiniest obstacle in front of someone? One little rock that you could trip over. They should be helping us out to get more theater. And then when you see something like Spring Awakening starting in a you know with Deaf West starting in a 99 seat theater here, then going to the Annenberg where I saw it, which was so beautiful. I saw and the first one. I saw it in the Yeah, 19th. how cool was that? It was amazing. Yeah, and then now it's on Broadway, and this whole cast that never had an equity card are now bringing a Broadway debut. How exciting for them, mm -hmm. these young kids. And they're bringing their dues money into the union. So why would the union not want to encourage more of that model? That's what someone's saying. And I've picketed many times, you know, with the Writers Guild against the studios and producers to having to pick it here against your own union as an actor was absolutely insane to me. I could not believe it. Mm -hmm. Yeah. It doesn't make any sense. And no, it's, uh, it doesn't make sense. And we appreciate it. Thank you for sticking up for us. But th then they were, they were scaring any writers, producers of even being out there and letting their voice be heard or picketing. Mm -hmm. It could only be actors. I'm like, no, we're all in this together. We all put these, we all put our jobs on the line, put money into every show I have done myself. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Using props, going up to my mother's house in Santa Barbara, and she's like, Where are my slippers? Uh, you'll see them in two months on stage. <laughs> wait, wait, wait. You're swiping your mom's slippers? Yeah, a couple purses. Yeah. Um, but no, what, I guess what I'm getting at though is, is that you're very much a fan of actors. And I, like, love you, actors. I, I love actors. I was an actor, and then I got back into teaching when uh, Jason Wood, who was my assistant, when I had an overall deal at Fox, he's now a big casting director, started teaching, and he called and said, can I use scenes from pilots that you and Jim wrote? I'm like, well, no one else is touching them. Why not? And so he took them to class, and then he said, would you come to class and give notes or give your comments? I'm like, sure. I mean, I've never seen these with live actors. So I went to a class and I started giving notes. And the actor's like, oh my God, that's such a good note. And, and Jason was like, you have to come back next week. You were, you were really good in class. I had never taught, I mean, uh -huh. except for dance at Cranbrook Theater School in college. And so I'm driving to class and, uh, and I get a call from him in the car, and he's like, um, I'm in Atlanta, I'm not gonna be there for class. I'm like, Jason, <laughs> I'm 10 minutes away from class. What, you're telling me now? I have to run the class? 
and I got there and I loved it so much and the school loved me so much and they asked me to come teach and that's when I started teaching these three-week classes mm-hmm. uh, in sitcom auditioning and I'm the only one doing it from writer, producer, showrunner perspective mm-hmm. and using my own material mostly um, and that's you know where you came into the picture. Yes. More or less. More I less. didn't take that class. No, you didn't. I mean, but my but, classes. So but yes, from the, that, those classes yes, led to your... Led to people... Uh, living room classes. Yes. So <laughs> the students from that said, we want to do more than three weeks with you. And I've taught those. LA, New York, Atlanta. Mm-hmm. I'm, I think I'm going to Dallas to do. Yeah. Uh, so then I invited some actors into my living room. And so we started classes here and part group therapy mostly <laughs> I call it I call it group therapy plus sitcom audition there you go yeah. <laughs> so there have been tears there's a box of Kleenex here for those very moments and uh, it's been great for me because it's honed my craft as a director mm-hmm. and also it's great to get to meet you know great actors like you and work with you on many levels yeah. and then pull you into readings of a play or whatnot yeah. and so yeah it, it's a win-win for everybody yeah and ultimately that's what I think I'm trying to get at is the is to say thank you because you are not an actor but you're totally fighting for actors and I feel like that's not that's that's rare it's rare that you like even actors don't even fight for actors a lot of the time and well, like, maybe because I've been an actor maybe. and I know um, how terrifying it is and that's why I stopped acting because I couldn't go in there and be natural without my face like shaking yeah. all over yeah I guess if you get a feeling a lot as an actor that everybody's just trying to put a gauntlet in front of you constantly, and you're trying well, to be business like, well, is, well, totally, yeah. that's part of the business, and um, but you just run into some personalities that are a little unsavory sometimes. I'm and, sure you, we, yeah. <laughs> but you're uh, you're one of the good guys. Thank you. So thank you for that, and you're thank welcome. you for all that you've taught us. I'm sure a lot, we have a lot of classmates. Uh, I have a lot of classmates listening right now, and I'm sure they. Thank you as yeah. well. And I know and some much- are saying, he's so hard on me. That's what we just did the showcase. Yeah. And you weren't in the last class, but it was cute. A lot of them were like, you know, you were, were just, just- you're just picking on me in rehearsal. And then like, no, he's picking just on me. So yeah, interesting. But I, yeah. I only pick because I know you can get there and I yeah. want to push everyone to be the best that they can be. And that was so cool. And it was such a successful showcase. It was, you know, nine scenes. Um, mm-hmm. With twenty-two actors and lots of liquor, lots of liquor, and lots so of... much liquor left over too. Well, I still have it here. Uh, I, you know, that's a Jewish thing. You don't want anyone to go without. So better to have more than less. Yeah. And uh, I mean, so many people just in the business that came all said how great, successful was that. It was one word they kept using, and it got so many laughs. And it was just, I was really proud of everybody. And. Uh, it ended up being also like uh, on-set sitcom class because I would change words in the scenes a little bit and mm-hmm. for certain people. Yeah. And now the only thing that's left is the sign-off. Okay. So I came back radio. Oh, <laughs> day. That sounds terrible. <laughs> you know what? You're gonna a, keep a for effort. I'm keeping it. Oh, no. <laughs> <laughs>